morning. Welcome to St. James. Glad you guys are here. Let's go ahead and begin. I just have a, one announcement that I want to give you, and everything else is normal today. Uh, this evening at 6.30 at new members class, we're going to talk about baptism. If anybody wants to show up, we're going to talk about baptism and what it means and uh, uh, how it works and who is the proper subject of baptism. So we'll discuss that tonight at 6.30. Anybody who wants to show up can uh, just be here downstairs at 6.30 and um, hope to see you there. Okay, stand with me if you would, and then I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we'll continue worshiping. Uh, Father, we come to you uh, now with all sorts of aspirations and hopes, and uh, some of which uh, need to be adjusted by you, and some of which need to be done away by you. Uh, but Father, all of them need to be met and fulfilled in, in you. And so, Father, the things that we're afraid of, the things that we uh, long to happen, would you work your sovereign will in those things, and would you meet us at our deepest needs with your love and with your grace and with your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, we are embarrassed to come before you, for we have rebelled against your wisdom and have gotten into trouble. For we have rejected your fatherly guidance and have gotten lost altogether. And therefore we are embarrassed. To you belongs righteousness, O Lord, and to us confusion of face. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father, most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, incline your ear to our troubles. Hear us when we pour out our sorrows before you. Forgive us, not on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy, on the ground of your great mercy in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray, for he is our Savior and the mediator of the covenant of grace. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
delights in his commandments. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Amos chapter 5. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour, with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. They hate him who, who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. Dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pistol reading is in Hebrews 3. We're going to be reading Hebrews 3 for a little bit over the next month or so. And not every text, we're not reading straight through like we did uh, with James, but uh, jumping around a little bit. Hebrews 3, 12 through 19 is a warning to Christians in the church to remain steadfast in the faith lest they fall away. Uh, the writer of Hebrews takes seriously the possibility that uh, there are people in the church who are members of the church, but who because they do not continue in their faith, will fall away. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. according to St. Mark chapter 10. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So you should do this. Uh, if you haven't done this already, try and do this, in, uh, uh, try and do this this week. Read through Mark 8 through 10 in one sitting. I mean, we're working our way through it, and they're, they're all connected. I mean, there's really no way else to do it. We can't. We don't have time to read the whole gospel of Mark every Sunday that we get together. But these stories are all connected, and they all, they're not separate, distinct stories. They flow in and out of each other. So last week, uh, this is the text today is right after the text from last week. The text last week was about divorce, right? And what we saw when we looked at that text was that the ones to whom belong the kingdom of God, the ones, for, the ones that Jesus is determined to guard and protect and defend, are the marginalized, are those that society says have little to no value. Uh, women and then children. Remember right at the end, he, he, uh, to make his point about divorce, he brings a child up and says, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. It's to people who have no value culturally. That's who the kingdom of God belongs to. Now this week, very next story, we, we get the alternate. Here is somebody, the rich young ruler. We know he's rich from Mark. Uh, we know he's young from Matthew. and We know he's a ruler from the gospel of Luke. By, by the way, that word ruler means like synagogue ruler. In the town where he's at, he's kind of a big deal in the synagogue. Which, by the way, is, is weird because he's young. Typically, in the Jewish world, synagogue leaders would be the, elder, the elderly men. No doubt, because he's rich, he has been allowed to have this position. Of, this is the way money works in the world, is that um, uh, it, gets you, it gets you places, it gets you things. And here he is. I mean, this is, uh, this, this is the, 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 he's in the upper class in this uh, village where they're at. He's definitely an important person. And yet, uh, you saw the end of the story. He's going to walk away outside of the kingdom. And one of the points that Jesus is making is that those who are culturally relevant, those who are at the center of society, those who are important, it's extremely difficult for them to get into the kingdom of God. And actually, I just undersold it. Because next week, coming out of this, coming out of this story, there's going to have a conversation about money with the disciples based on this guy. So I'm trying not to talk about money too much today because we're going to talk about that next Sunday. But one of the things Jesus says to his disciples, which they just can't grasp, is that it's not just that it's difficult for people who have money and power to get into the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's impossible for people with money to get into the kingdom of God. We'll talk about what that means next week. Meanwhile, here's a guy who, the disciples have to be frustrated with Jesus, right? I mean, here he is in this town like, this is the best way to make headway in this town evangelistically, is if you can get the richest people in the town, the most powerful people in the town, the most relevant people in the town to jump on the Jesus ship, that's going to have to help with the rest of the town. And yet Jesus insists on throwing up roadblocks, not because he doesn't want this guy to come to the kingdom, but because this guy, Jesus wants this guy to truly convert to the kingdom. And we'll talk about what that means this morning. So, uh, Let's just dig in and kind of read through here. And I want to point out, first of all, 
the, the, the need that this man has, which he recognizes. In verse 17, uh, this guy runs up and kneels before Jesus. So by the way, this is not like, you know, he's not approaching Jesus on the corner saying, let's have a theological discussion. He's sort of desperate to get the answer to this question. He runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him and he says, good teacher, good rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't want you to think, uh, um, it's obligatory 30 seconds for this topic. I don't want you to think that what he's talking about is how to get to heaven when, he's, when he dies. That's not anything that any Jew would be concerned about. And lots of times we see the word eternal life and we instantly think of heaven. That's not what they would have thought about. Actually, in the Greek, anytime you see the words eternal life in the Gospels, the Greek behind it says literally uh, the age, the age. Uh, how can I be in the age? And I'll show that to you. It's actually real explicit in the ESV in our reading next week. But how can I be in the age to come? And in the Jewish worldview, there are two ages. We're now living in the age where things are broken and kind of messed up. And we're looking forward to the age when the Messiah comes and puts everything right and puts God's enemies under his heel. And when that happens, that'll be the age to come. And this is a common question for faithful Jews to have is, when the age to come shows up, how can I know that I'm in on that? Like, how can, I, how can I be sure that I'm in there? What does it take to get into the age to come, to be on the side of the Messiah? Uh, the way that this would be answered typically would be, you, you would ask a rabbi this question, rabbi, how do I know that I'm going to be in the age? And the way that the rabbi would answer typically would be to give you three, four, five sort of uh, niche steps to doing it, like, but based on the Bible, sort of, but kind of like their own take on it. And if you do these three, four, five steps, the rabbi is teaching you that you can be in on the age to come. I'll give you an example. In the Mishnah, um, some people come to Rabbi Eleazar, li lives before Jesus, and says, Rabbi, teach us the paths that we may merit the life of the world to come. How can we get into the age? And, G and Eleazar said to them, so here's four steps based on the Eliezer says. Be careful about the honor of your colleagues. You, by the way, you don't need to write this down. I'm not, I'm, this is an example. I'm not teaching you to, that you should do this. This is Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, two, restrain your sons from studying Greek learning. Don't let, your don't, don't let your kids study that pagan Greek philosophy. No Homer, no Aristotle, no Socrates. Keep them away from that stuff. Three, place them between the knees of the sages don't let them study Greek philosophy. Make sure that they're hanging out with the rabbis, like they're spending time uh, with, with the people who teach and talk about Torah. And then when you pray, know before whom you stand. In other words, when you pray, be focused on God. So here's four steps. None of them are really kind of in the Bible, but you can see they're all sort of like religious. Uh, you can sort of get them from the Old Testament. And he said, here's what Eliezer says, thereby you will merit the life of the world to come. So, this, this, this guy comes to Jesus and asks a typical question. Like, good rabbi, how can I inherit? What must I do to inherit uh, the age? What must I endure? endure what, what must I do to inherit the age to come? And then Jesus says to him, so check this out. So here's the source. The, the need is to be in the age to come. Jesus is going to give us the source for how to get there. And it's definitely God, Right? Uh, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's what he means. 
why do you call me good? There's nobody good except God alone. See, why are you walking around looking for people to give you tips on how to get into the age to come? God's the only one who can tell you how to do that. What does the Bible say? Like, look at the Ten Commandments. What does the Bible say? Well, you, you, don't, you don't need to go around and like talk to all the experts. You don't need to look up the YouTube videos about what does this mean or that mean. You, you don't even, like, and again, you know, like, uh, I, I love the small catechism in the Book of Concord, but your first area, that your first place to go when you have a question, like, what, what does this mean or what, what should I do, is not the small catechism or the Book of Concord. Your first place to go is always the Bible. Give me five seconds to preach a little commercial to you. Be in the Bible. All of you as Jesus followers are called to be in God's word. Like you would never ever in a million years say, oh yeah, you know, I love my mom. I don't ever talk to her though. You know, well, every once in a while we get together in this room and we read letters from my mom and we discuss them. And that's good. And there's this guy who lived a long time ago who wrote a small commentary on what the letters to my mom mean. I read those. And what God wants is a, a personal relationship with us. He wants us to be in the word. And if you're not in the word, you're not in that relationship with him, okay? So, Jesus, by the way, this is just like last week, remember? The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, hey, can we get divorced? And what does Jesus say? What, what did Moses command you? What does the Bible, like, hey guys, what does the Bible say? And then they had the conversation that, that they had. But Jesus is constantly pointing, pointing people back to God's word. God is the good one. Go and ask him. And Jesus says to this guy, um, Ten Commandments, right? And actually, it's, uh, what is this? Commandments 5, 6, 7, 8. And then he circles back to Commandment 4. Um, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. That's actually not a commandment. That's not one of the Ten Commandments. But it's m most likely that Jesus is using that do not defraud as an application of the do not covet commandments, right? Like, to, to, to want what somebody else has so much that you're willing to send to get it, that's kind of the end game of coveting. Don't do that. And then he comes back to the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. So go to God's word. Now, the interesting thing here is that this guy, verse 20, actually, let's talk about this first. Why does Jesus do that? Why does, when the man comes up and says, what do I have to do to inherit the life of the age to come? Why doesn't Jesus say, believe on me and it's yours? Why does, Jesus is not very good at evangelism. That's like what he's got. I mean, that's what the, all of us believe, right? Why doesn't Jesus say that? Well, here's the reason. It's because Jesus is not looking to get this guy to make a conversion. Jesus is looking to convert him. And there's a barrier that stands between this man and his faith in Jesus, a barrier that all of us struggle with. And that barrier is his own self-sufficiency. And so Jesus is gonna challenge it. And he says, here's the 10 commandments. And the kid says in verse 20, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I keep the 10 commandments. Okay, so let's circle back just briefly to talk, to talk real quickly about what Jesus is doing here. And this is gonna be a little bit of review for those of, for, uh, this is gonna be a re review of your confirmation class for those of you who are Lutherans. There, uh, when the Bible talks about the law, when the law is used in the Bible, there's basically three ways that the Bible uses the law. Uh, the first way is like a curb. The, the law keeps us from doing bad stuff, right? So um, 
I might want to murder you, but God says don't murder, and that should count for something with me. And also, like he's written that on our hearts too, everybody's hearts. We all know that murder is wrong. It's the first use of the law. Everybody has it written on their hearts that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong. And now I know that people murder and steal and lie uh, sometimes without any sort of like sense of wrong or their conscience is far, conscious flaring up. What's happening then? Well, so their conscience, they've gotten, to, they've gotten it when we do this, when we lie so much that we no longer feel it. We get our conscience to the point where our conscience doesn't bother us when we lie. But if you lie to me and I find out, it won't just be that I'm frustrated because I thought something was true and now I find out it's not. I'll actually be angry with you because I will think it's not fair that you lied to me, even though I myself am a liar. Our conscience always flares up because... God's written the law in our hearts. This is the first use of the law. It's a curb, and it's there written in our hearts to protect society. The second use of the law is this. It's a mirror. When we look at the law and it says, honor your father and your mother, and you know I haven't, the law is basically telling you, you're messed up. You need to get this fixed. So the, 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 the mirror shows us that we're not right, that we don't do a good job, that, that we need help. As for Christians, what the mirror should do is point out to us that we need to go to Jesus because Jesus actually can forgive us for not honoring our parents and help us honor our parents. That's the second use. The third use is a Christian use. Sometimes it's just called the third use. Uh, what it does is it says the law teaches us as Christians how to live. It's, this is only for Christians, by the way. For you as a Christian, for those of you who are Christians, as a Christian, when you read the law and it says honor your father and mother, like you know I should honor my parents. As a Christian, God's given me the ability and the command to honor my parents, and so I'm going to do it. Not because I think it makes God happy with me or makes God angry with me if I don't do it. That's not the case. It's already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. But because it's the way God wants me to live, and so I'm going to do it. Those are the three uses. Now let's ask ourselves the question. Does the first use apply to this guy? Is, is Jesus trying to curb his sinful tendencies? No, he, he doesn't come to Jesus and say, hey, I really want to murder my friend. Can you help me? That's not what's going on. Does the third use apply? No, the guy's not a Christian. He, like Keeping the law isn't going to help him. He, he doesn't know Jesus in, in the intimate sense that's going to lead to his salvation and conversion. So it has to be the second sense. Jesus is using the law to try and get this guy to see there's something wrong with me. I'm actually messed up, but the guy doesn't play along. Jesus says, you have to keep the law. And instead of the guy saying, oh, you're right, what, help me with that. He just says, I already do keep the law. I've always kept the law from my youth up. And now, so here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't bust him on that. Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. You need to come clean. Jesus lets him sit with that. And there's two, re there, there's two reasons why. One is, so this, you, you've never heard this from a Lutheran pulpit before. One is, what if it's possible that the guy really has kept the law? What if he never has committed adultery? In a surface sense, you know, Jesus intensifies it in Matthew 5 with that, like, if you even lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. It's not, it's, not, it's not the sin of murder that the fifth commandment's after. It's the sin of hatred. If you even hated somebody, Okay, forget that for a second. What if just on the surface level, it's possible to keep the Ten Commandments your whole life? Jesus is just going to let that stand. There's a, good, there's a good text that helps explain this. In Philippians chapter 3, 
where Paul discusses his past future experiences as an unbeliever coming to faith. And now there's this thing that I've heard Lutheran pastors do before, which is kind of wonky. They'll talk about St. Paul and they'll say, you know, Paul was a Pharisee and he was a legalist and he was trying to make God happy by keeping the rules. And then he's really struggling, but he's just crushed because he can't keep the rules. And then Jesus meets him and saves him. And that's not, I mean, that might be Martin Luther's story, but that's not St. Paul's story. St. Paul's story is exactly the opposite. St. Paul was never crushed by sin and like, God, I need forgiveness. What's going to happen? And then finally he says, trust in me and I'll forgive you. St. Paul's story is actually the opposite. Let me read you from Philippians chapter three. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. If anybody in here is proud of who they are as a human being, I can be way prouder than you. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he's one of those rare cats that actually knows he can trace his genealogy back to the original tribe. By the time of Paul's day, there weren't a whole lot of guys who could do that, who knew I was from the tribe of such and such. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, check this out, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, according to the law, I'm completely righteous. I am blameless. There was nothing that I ever did wrong according to the law. But Paul's saying it. I kept the Ten Commandments. That's what he's saying. And that's what this kid is saying to Jesus, is that I've never done anything wrong. Here's the deal. You don't need Jesus because you aren't able to keep the law. You don't need Jesus because you are able to keep the law. You just need Jesus because you need Jesus. Has nothing to do with whether you're able to keep the law or not able to keep the law, don't get yourself playing that game. It doesn't matter. You just need Jesus. And that's what Paul discovers. Now we're going to transition into the third point, which is the solution, which ends up being radical, as opposed to radical self-love last week, radical discipleship based upon the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul comes to. So listen, Paul never says, and there's other places where Paul talks about being the chief of sinners. But in Philippians 3, one of the points he's making is, is I did everything right, but I still need Jesus, all right? Here's what he says. So as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, however great a guy I was, however perfectly I was living my life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know what? I might be the best person in the world, Paul says, but I want Jesus. However good my law keeping is, Jesus is better. However high my standing in the community is as a Pharisee, Jesus is better. However much money I have, Jesus is better. However strong I have, however attractive I am to people, Jesus is better. Jesus is trying to get this kid to realize what Paul realized, which is Jesus is better. Whatever you have is not good enough. Even if it's perfect, it's not good enough. All right, so there's two ways that Jesus does this. First of all, he presses the kid one more time. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Okay, you're missing one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See what he's saying? Buddy, there's one thing that you're missing and that is that you're not missing anything. There's one thing that you lack and it's that you lack nothing. You are too good. You're too perfect. You have everything you want. 
You're morally righteous. You're extremely wealthy. You have power in the community. The leader of the synagogue would definitely be a muckety-muck. You have everything you want. You're just going to have to decide, do you want me or do you want what you've got? And the kid walks away. And the reason why he walks away is because he doesn't need Jesus. He wants what he has more than he wants what Jesus is getting. And what Jesus wants him to do is this, is that you need to give up. You need to give up everything that you think is important. You need to give, like Paul did, you need to give up your perfection. You need to give up your money. You need to give up your power. That's why he says, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Put yourself under the poor. So you know what happens in this community, right? What happens, just mathematically, what happens if he sells everything that he has and gives it to the poor? He's going to be poor, right? In fact, nobody's going to be poorer than him because all the people who were poor now have his money. And he has nothing. Jesus is saying, you got to get rid of your social standing. Everything that you think is making your life good that's not me, you need to ditch it. And that's what he's calling us to do today. And I don't want to talk about money too much because, again, we'll talk about that next week. Jesus and the disciples step away from this. And the disciples are like, how did that happen? And Jesus explains it to them. More on that next week. But what Jesus wants to do is to take away the things that give us value and the things that we place our trust in so that all we have is him. There's a reason why he doesn't tell everybody. Jesus has rich friends, right? Like some of the women who are traveling with him have a lot of money. Uh, Nicodemus has a lot of money. Jesus doesn't tell everybody, sell all you have to give you. But what he's doing is going, not after money, but after this guy's idol, the thing that gives this guy meaning and purpose. Three diagnostic questions to make sure that we're not in this young man's position. First of all, what are you trusting in? What do you lean on when things are bad? What is it that you're telling yourself, it's okay. Bad stuff happens, but it's okay. Like, I still have my job. If, if you're leaning on that, I'm not telling you to quit your job, but that idol has to be exposed and got rid of. What, what about, like, I mean, there's all kinds of cheesy stuff, like, people like me. I'm attractive. Um, I, at least I have my home. At least I have my health. At least I have my family, even family. Health, family and health are good, right? I mean, that, this is why Jesus tells people sometimes, you, you need to leave your father and your mother. Let, your, let, your, let, 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 let somebody else bury your dad and come and follow me. Jesus is not saying you need to hate your parents. But what he's saying is for some people, that family is an idol. It's the thing that gives them hope and comfort when they need hope and comfort. And Jesus wants only himself to give hope and comfort. He's not saying that you can't enjoy and find hope and comfort in your family or in your job, your vocation, whatever it is, your funniness, whatever it is. You can do that as long as he is the primary one, as long as he, as long as he is the foundational one. And when he's not, you just have to scrap it and get rid of it. What is it that if you lost it would mean the loss of your life's meaning? What is it that if you lost it would mean the loss of your life's meaning? I've lost my job before. I've been fired and it crushed me. You know why? It was an idol. It was an idol. And I hope nobody loses their jobs, but in that sense, it needed to go. And I wasn't going to step away from my idolatry. That idolatry was destroying my marriage with Angela. It was destroying my relationship with my friends. It was destroying the church that I was in that I got fired from. It needed to go. Super painful. The whole thing was messed up and screwed up and painful on my end. But that idol had to be killed. What is it that whatever, if you lost it, it would be the loss of your meaning? Third one. Um, what is it that, 
What is it? So this, this connects with verse 21 here, verse 22. What is it that if you lost it, I'm sorry, what is it that you would rather be sad and have than be happy and lose? What is the thing in your life that you would rather have it and be sad than lose it and be happy? So a pastor friend of mine preached this text several years ago, and he asked this question, and it just nailed me to the wall. He said, what if I told you, what if I told you, I, I, I've told you some of this before, some, some of you this before, what if I told you that I could cut your income in half, 50% of what you make. You're going to have to lose your house. You're going to have to like extremely step down the pace of your living. You're not going to be able to eat out anymore. You're going to maybe sell some of your cars. You're going to have to hang with different people because that's just the way it is. What if I told you I could cut your income in half, but I could make you happier two times over? Would you take that? And I said to myself, I don't think I could. I don't think I could. Part of that is I don't believe him. I still think that my money makes me happy. Part of that is even if I was convinced that that was the case, there are too many good things that my money gives me that don't make me happy that I'd prefer to live with and have the certain status and have you know, the, the, the certain level of comfort to be able to eat the certain types of food that I eat. I'd rather be unhappy and have those things than be happy and lose them. That's an idol. It has to go. I mean, this is why the guy walks away sad, right? Disheartened by the saying, verse 22, the young man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Did he need to walk away sorrowful? He didn't. Why did he walk away sad? He shouldn't be sad. He has money and power and attractiveness and everybody in that town looks up to him. And he's a perfect guy. Why is he sad? He's sad because he'd rather have money and power and attractiveness and be the perfect guy than to give it all up and have Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, if you do that, I will give you treasure in heaven. Now, can I say this? Because some of you are like, see, treasure in heaven. You go to heaven when you die. That's what I was talking about, right? No, it's not talking about. He's, Jesus is saying that my father has all the treasure in the world stored up in your bank account in heaven, which I'm going to give to you if you follow me. You don't... Where do you keep your treasure? Do you, you might not call it treasure, but where do you keep your money? You keep it in the bank, right? What if I say that your money is stored up in the bank? Do I, mean, do I mean that you have to go to the bank and spend your money at the bank to enjoy it? No. What I mean is, is your money is kept in the bank so that it can be brought to you to use wherever you're at now. That's what treasure in heaven means. There is this eternal, infinite treasure that God has, which he's willing to give to you. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Like if I invited you over to my house, I say, come over, I've got a beer in the fridge and we can like watch the baseball game. I don't mean that you have to come over to my house and climb into my fridge to drink the beer. I mean, when you come over, I'll take the beer out of the fridge and give it to you. And when Jesus says there's treasure in heaven kept for us, that's what it means, is that in the new creation, he has infinite amount of money and pleasure and power and respectability saved up for us to give to us. And so don't be scared about being sad. If you give up everything, you are going to get everything back even more. This is a cultural problem, though. This, is, this choice to be sad, to be empty. Look, everybody around us, this is no newsflash to you guys, but like um, depression, anxiety, uh, loneliness, it's an epidemic in our culture. We're all incredibly sad, even though that we are the richest culture by far in the history of civilization. And we're not even happy about that. Saw a stat when I was studying for the sermon, and I forget who did it, and I didn't write it down. I didn't mention it in the first sermon. 
but somebody had done a study in the years between like 1950-something and early, this is early 1990s when this study was done. The um, American wealth and real money doubled for the average family. However, the happiness levels slightly went down to about a third of people. This is in 1992. I guarantee you it's way less now. In 1992, about a third of the American population reported as happy, even though income had doubled between their generation and their parents' generation. Why is that? Because we prefer to be sad and have all the things that we think are going to make us happy, even though we know that they're not going to make us happy. It's a cultural problem. And the only solution to it is Jesus. Let me give you an example real quick here. In 2016 at the Golden Globes, Jim Carrey was presenting. He he wasn't getting an award, but he was presenting like some sort of comedy award. And he gave this little speech as a preface. Take about 30 seconds to watch it on YouTube. And you should go watch it. Because one of the things that's startling about this speech is that everybody is cracking up laughing. Because Jim Carrey is trying to be funny. He's making funny faces. He's saying it in funny voices. Everybody's dying laughing. And yet when I read this to you out loud, your heart will break. It's so, it's, go watch it. Like the words he is saying are devastating. But the reaction he's getting in this room full of people are, is just complete hilarity. Here's what he says. He comes out, they clap for him, and he says, thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Gold Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dreams. No, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner, winning actor Jim Carrey because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know won't ulti- for what I know what ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. See what he's saying? Like, it's heartbreaking when you just read it like that. He's like, I'm determined to get a third Golden Globe because then I know I'll finally belong. People will finally respect me. I will finally have arrived, even though I know it's never going to pay out, he says. We are all, I mean, it's, it's, I'm glad he says it out loud. It's so bizarre when everybody's laughing. But I'm glad he said it out loud because all of us are running this race. All of us believe that if people, like, and we say stuff like this, uh, even if I lose everything, at least I have my respectability. Or we, we all are chasing after these things that we think are going to make us happy on one side of our brain and the other side of our brain is saying, no way, you know that this is going to kill you. You know that the pursuit of money is going to kill you. You do know that, right? You know the pursuit of respectability is going to kill you. You know that that desire of yours to be attractive to people is going to kill you. That desire for romance is going to kill you. Pursued to its end as an ultimate goal is what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with money or property or, or romance, whatever. You know that desire for the third Golden Globe is going to destroy you. We all know that, and yet we keep chasing it. And that's why Jesus says, give it all away. It's killing you. You would not sleep in a dark bedroom with a venomous snake. Put it away. It's going to kill you. And trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Jesus wants this guy to give up everything and trust in him. There's three ways he talks about trusting in Jesus here in this text. Let me give these three to you, and then we'll be done in just a second. Jesus taught, in terms of like living a life of trusting in Jesus and abandoning our idols, Jesus wants to insist that he has the ability to rescue us, he has the motive to rescue us, and he has the means to rescue us. First of all, he's got the ability to rescue us. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to this guy, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
And now what I talked about is like what his disciples would have heard and what this guy would have heard. The guy calls him good rabbi and Jesus says, what are you looking around for rabbis to give you like information? Like trust in God. But what, one of the things that Mark wants you to hear, me and you, that his original hearers would not have heard in the moment, is Mark wants, Mark wants us to do the basic math of this statement. Jesus says to this guy, and he's saying to you, why do you call me good? There's nobody good but God. Now, Jesus knows about the word good. Jesus knows about good people and, you know, good food and stuff. But he's using the word good in a special sense here, like ultimate good. Why do you call me good? There's nobody good but God. And if you'll just stop and you'll listen to that, what that's going to force you to do is to, to make a decision. Why do you call Jesus good if he's not God? If he is ultimate good, though, what's to stop you from believing that he is God? It, it can only be one of the, it, it, it can't be one or the other. It's got to be both. Either he's good and he's God, or he's not good and he's not God. And Jesus wants this kid, maybe years later after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, to do this math in his head. That's my, my point for you, though, this morning is this, is that what Jesus is saying here is that I am powerful enough to fix this. I'm way more powerful than a third golden globe. I'm way more powerful than career advancement. I'm way more powerful than academic success. I'm way more powerful than a significant other. I'm way more powerful than the love of children or parents or friends. I'm way more powerful than the respect that you get from the community because you're an upstanding citizen. I can actually fill the hole that you think those things can fill but never can because I am God. He has the ability to do it. Second of all, he has the motive. Look at verse 21. First part of the verse. Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus looking at this kid, loved him. Look, Jesus loves you guys. Be honest with yourself. What's the thing that you're chasing? It's different for all of us in here. What's the thing that you're chasing? Is it like this guy? Is it like money? You know, more like a better house or more things or a nicer car? Is it uh, more power? Is it more respectability? Is it more pleasure? What's, it, what's at the heart of all those things? You know why he wants money and respectability? The same reason you want money and respectability and power. So that when you walk into a room, people will know that's a person who's respectable. That's who's in charge here. Oh, that's the upper class. That's what we want. We want people to look at us and say, that person's worth something. This is why you run races. This is why you work hard at your job. This is why you're nice to people. So that other people will look at you. This is why you desperately want a third Golden Globe. So that you can stand in front of that crowd and they all clap and say, yes, this guy's amazing. That's what we want it for. And it never works. It never works because what we want is love, but there's not a single person in the, in the entire universe who's able to give us the amount of love that it's going to take to fill up this hole in our hearts, except for Jesus. He's the only one who can love us enough to actually make it worthwhile to give up everything. You have money, but the people who you think look at you and say, oh, they have money, they actually dislike you for it. You win the third Golden Globe, and everybody claps and smiles, but you know what they're thinking? Oh, I wish I'd won. Or, I don't know why he won for that movie. Like, that other movie was way better. You think that you're respectable, but other people look at you and say, that guy's a snob. Everything that you think is going to earn you the respect and affection and love of other people 
never will work except for Jesus. He can love you that much. So he has the ability, he has the emotive, and he also has the means. Last thing will be done. Look at verse 21, last part of the verse. Uh, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Follow Jesus. What does Jesus mean by follow me? Well, uh, this text tells us, look at, verse, look at verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, literally, in the, the Greek word behind that is just the road. He was setting out on his road. Okay, so what road is he setting out on that he's telling this guy to follow him on? Well, again, go read Mark 8 through 10 this week. Jesus has decided in Mark 8, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to take this road to Jerusalem. And if you read the stories all the way through Mark 8, 9, and 10, you can see him geographically coming closer and closer to Jerusalem. Uh, I'll give you a quote. I'm not gonna, we're not going to get to this, this Pentecost season. But just a few verses later in verse 32, uh, Mark says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Why? Because they know what the road is. He's going to Jerusalem to do what he's done by what he's by this time has predicted three times he's going to do. He's going to die. What is Jesus telling this guy to do? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me, and I'm going to give you treasures in heaven. Let's get to Jerusalem. I'll unlock the bank vault, and you can have everything that your heart's looking for. But it's going to take me dying and rising from the dead. It's going to take me taking all of your hopes that you've invested in your money and in your obedience to the commandments and your respectability, all those hopes which deep down inside are failing you. Because as confident as you appear on the surface, you're the guy who ran up to me and fell down on his knees. You're the guy who's walking away crying because you know it's not working. Tell you what, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to take all those things and I'm going to stick them inside my body. I'm going to swallow up all the loneliness in the universe, all the poverty in the universe, all the brokenness in the universe, and it's going to die. It's going to, it's, I'm going to latch it onto myself, and it's going to die. And then I'm going to rise from the dead, and everything that your heart wants, that you know by now, money and power and respectability has not gotten for you, I'm going to give it to you with the power of my resurrection. I'm going to fill you up with all the love that you contain. You will never, ever have the desire. We always are. God help us. We're broken but we should never ever have the desire, the desperation to be attractive to people because the God of the universe died and rose from the dead and now loves you with an everlasting and infinite love. That's treasures in heaven. That's way better than any money and any power and any respectability and any third golden globe could ever be. Stand and let's pray and then we'll have communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us and for being a good God. And again, Father, we bring all these aspirations and dreams to you. And um, a lot of them are really appropriate, but some of them have dark idols standing behind them. And we can't get rid of them, God. We can't give up our money. We can't give up our plans. We can't give up our control. We're going to need you to wrest those things from us. Do it gently, Father. Do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do it at the foot of your cross and from your empty tomb. God, make yourself real to us in ways that we can experience this deep, infinite love that Jesus had for this guy, that Jesus has for us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be this morning for everybody who's sick, physically sick, mentally sick, psychologically sick, for all the loneliness that people, that, that those of us in our family suffer. I pray especially, Father, that this morning, um, for those who aren't physically sick, 
for those who aren't mentally or socially or psychologically sick, for those of us who are uh, uh, um, very self-contented. And I'm not necessarily praying, God, that you would take those things away from us, but Father, help us to want you and your son Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit more than we want those things. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray for all of our sister churches in the area, all of our sister LCMS churches. Bless them as your word is preached and your sacraments are celebrated. Bless them this morning. May your kingdom grow there. May unbelievers come to faith in you and may believers be sanctified. We pray for all the gospel preaching, Bible-believing churches in our area, that together we might see your kingdom grow and grow more and more all the time for your good and for our glory. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray these things in the name of our brother Jesus who died and rose from the dead so that we could have access to you as our Father. And we know that you love us. We know that you want to hear our request. And so we bring them boldly before you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, confess with me the words of our faith in the Apostles' Creed. This is found in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory, to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Drawn to 
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.